Trinity United Methodist Church in Ruston, Louisiana. Our prayer is that God uses this time to speak specifically to you, regardless of where you are on your faith journey. We'd like to also invite you to worship with us every Sunday morning at 1045, either in person or online at www.trinityruston.org. Thanks for listening. Our lesson this morning are familiar words, and uh, no, it's... I'm not reading the wrong lesson. You're just hearing it at a different time of year than you're used to. Hear these words. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged, and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in bands of cloth, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So I'm training a guy to be a yard dude. His name is Dennis, and Dennis was recently released from prison and is on parole. Uh, Tamara and I both are kind of helping him, uh, hopefully, uh, find something he can do that will allow him to make some money to straighten his finances up and, and do some other things to become a productive citizen. Uh, Dennis does a pretty good job of mowing the yard. He has one challenge, though. My yard man doesn't know a wisteria from a whippoorwill. He will mow over anything. I have lost a whole lot of flowers to Dennis and his aggressive lawn mowing. Uh, The other day he said, I finished your yard. Really? And I could look from the backyard across the front yard to the ditch, and there the dandelions stood about this tall. I said, Dennis, you didn't mow the dandelions. I didn't think I was supposed to mow the flowers. Dennis, those are weeds. Go ahead and mow. And Dennis has done some other things that that are amusing. Yeah, I told him to cut the jonquils because that's what you do on Mother's Day weekend. He didn't cut them. He dug all the bulbs up. Uh, so, you know, it's okay. A couple of mornings ago, I was watching the sun come up. That's what you do in beautiful downtown Gibsland. You count the cars, four, and you watch the sun come up. And I was looking at the steps leading down from the front of the house, and I've planted daylilies. Now, because I live in the jonquil capital of North Louisiana, every other flower that comes up has to be yellow. My yard is filled with everything that will come up yellow. After the jonquils are done, here come the lilies, and the lilies will be done, and I'll come up with some other yellow flower. 
And I was looking on my front steps, and on this side, the lilies were just reaching to heaven, offering praise and glory and yellow flower to, to God. They're gorgeous. They're beautiful. And on this side of the steps, I have a block that holds my American flag. It's a nice concrete block, and I wasn't paying attention to Dennis. And he took the block, and he put the block right where the lilies were supposed to come up. And I didn't see the block for about three weeks. And when I saw the block, I said, behold, Dennis has put the block where it doesn't belong. Move the block, and I wondered, and on this side, the lilies are spindly and short, and they're not coming up at all. They're alive. They're going to grow. They're going to make it. But on this side, the lilies are giving glory to God. And over here, lilies have not experienced the sun. And they're stunted. That's theological, y'all. If you have not experienced the sun, you are stunted in your growth. And sadly and tragically in the church, we have a bunch of stunted stuff over here because in the church we've done a good job of keeping you away from Jesus. We talk about everything but. We talk about how being good. You should be a good Methodist. You know, I'm called to do funerals and they say, preacher, he was a good Methodist. I don't know what that is. Will you explain good Methodist to me? Well, he came to church every Christmas and Easter. He was a good Methodist. We'll talk about soup kitchens. We'll build ramps. We'll do all this good stuff because Jesus told us to do all the good stuff we're supposed to do, but we never talk about Jesus. We don't experience the sun and our growth. Is stunted. I read the passage I read because it connects Jesus to historic facts. Jesus was born between 6 and 4 BC. Those dates are placed there because of three things the Emperor Augustus, Quirinius being the governor of Syria, and the registration that the Roman Empire was doing. This was a tax registration, y'all. Those three events come together between four and between six and four BC. Jesus was a real historic human being. You can place him on a calendar. But there's nothing else about Jesus as a man that coincides with the expectations of either what the religious people thought God ought to act like or what Jesus ought to act like. The the religious people could not believe that God would be such a scandalous God that he would imperil himself in common human nature. That God would come to earth and bring good news to those who suffer and victory to those who are constantly defeated. That God would die as a slave offering no, no resistance to that. 
The Jews had their idea of what Messiah was to be. Messiah was going to come to earth and and kick the pagans out of Palestine and and set the good Jews up as rulers of Palestine. The Messiah was going to rebuild the temple. The Messiah was going to bring justice to the world. And yet Jesus allowed the pagan Romans to crucify him. Jesus didn't rebuild the temple. He judged the temple. He condemned the people for turning the house of prayer into a den of thieves. And rather than bringing justice to the pagans, he became obedient to death even death upon the cross. He broke all the expectations as a man that the Jews had and that you and I would think that God coming to earth would be like. His birth was not announced to the religious authorities. There was no great celebration He was born in a humble manger, basically a barn, to a peasant couple. He died on a Roman cross, never collecting for himself more than a handful of followers during his life. And even at his resurrection, He found himself gathered again with fishermen and tax collectors and other folks of ill repute. Jesus, we affirm in the Apostles' Creed, was God's Son. Jesus from history lived. But we also refer to him as Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. The words of John 3.16, most of you have memorized in one form or another. They tell us simply, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What we don't get to usually is bothering to read John 3.17, which says, indeed, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The Messiah came to bring salvation to everyone. The Messiah came to bring and show God's love and mercy to everyone. Jesus came to deal with a problem you and I can't deal with. The problem of sin that has estranged us from God. The way back in the third chapter of Genesis, sin. 
If you want a humbling experience, if you want to have your life and faith challenged, I invite you to become a part of mentoring or participating in confirmation class. It's coming up. We'll crank it up in August, and they probably need some mentors and some volunteers and some helpers. And I'll tell you what, those young people, they can ask some questions. We took a group when I was in Bossier City, we took a group to the Jewish synagogue. We were kind of touring them around, showing them other churches and other faiths. Um, they particularly liked the Episcopal Church, especially when the communion was offered to those Methodist children. They said, this Welch's taste different here at this church. But we were at the Jewish synagogue and we were there for a Friday evening service and it was a new young rabbi. She had just come and been uh, appointed or hired or called by that synagogue and she preached a great sermon and we enjoyed worship with them. And she asked the confirmation class to stay afterwards to, to talk with her and ask any questions they wanted to ask. And, you know, they were good Methodist kids and they were, they were just pounding away wanting to know the difference between the Jews and the Methodists. And she did a good job of, of showing how that uh, Christianity arose out of Judaism, that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi and all the good stuff that you'd kind of expect. And then the students listened um, quietly and they listened with great attention to her. They were respectful but man, they started pelting her with questions. And I don't know why, but they got on this idea of being forgiven. And they wanted to know in the Jewish religion, how is someone forgiven when they've done something wrong or committed a sin? And so she starts mapping it out. And she basically says, if you've done something wrong to another human being, you go to that other human being and you ask them for forgiveness. And then if you have done something that has harmed them financially or caused them a loss, there you are supposed to restore that which they lost. In other words, if you borrow Bubba's car, let's see, if he was a good Jew, he would have to be Bubba bin Jacob. If you borrow Bubba bin Jacob's car and you wreck his car, Okay, it's an accident. You didn't do it on purpose, but you go ask Bubba to forgive you and then you pay for Bubba's car. Okay, that's, that's the way it worked and, and she laid out all kinds of scenarios and the Methodist kids were looking there and they were listening and you could see some of them taking notes. They were gonna go home and try some of this out on their parents that night. You could tell. One girl... She said, you ask the person to forgive you, and then you repay if there's been a financial loss, right? Rabbi said, right. said, my question is this. If the person dies before they can ask for forgiveness, or before they can pay back the debt, what happens with unforgiven sin in the afterlife? 
And the rabbi went silent. Do you know the answer? Jesus, Jesus, when I die and I get up there, if I get up there, when I die, I'm going to say, Jesus. DeGraff and Reed, what makes you think you're worthy to come up here? Jesus. What are you going to do about all the sins you committed in your life? Jesus. My only hope is the grace of God in Jesus Christ that he forgives me of my sins. And I'm serious about this. Every night, man, I'm, I pray that the Holy Spirit will show me my sins. That's tough. Don't pray that prayer because the Holy Spirit will show you your sins. And I ask for God's forgiveness and I make a note of people I might need to talk to. And then I pray, oh Lord, show me other things that I've done that I may be unaware of. Or Lord, I confess to you the sins I may be unaware of. Because my big fear is that when I die, if I've sinned and I haven't confessed it, it's going to appear on the jumbotron in heaven. I don't want my sins on the jumbotron in heaven. So I'm big into confession and asking God to forgive me because that's my only hope. That Jesus will forgive my sins. So Jesus Christ, Jesus the man, Christ the Messiah. And then the first line, that line in the Apostles' Creed affirms that we affirm he's our Lord. We don't understand what the word Lord means. We don't have kings and queens and princes. We don't have royalty. And that word and that concept comes out of that culture. We are saying when we confess Christ as our Lord is that there is no higher authority in our life that he commands and we follow. That he calls and we obey. And we step back from that. Because that means that Jesus came not so we could feel different, but Jesus came so that we would be different. And I wonder if this whole notion of being different is where there is resistance to the faith and where that really digs in. Soren Kierkegaard put it this way, people try to persuade us that objections against Christianity spring from doubt. But the objections against Christianity spring from insubordination, the dislike of obedience, rebellion against authority. We don't like what Jesus told us to do. And so we step back from it. I wish that there was a list of five things you did and five things you didn't do. And if you did these five things and you didn't do these five things, you would know absolutely beyond a doubt you would go to heaven. It would be a whole lot easier to talk to folks about, okay, if you do these five things and if you avoid these five things, you'll immediately go to heaven rather than saying you need to have faith in Jesus Christ. So there was this guy that came up to Jesus one day. He was a lawyer and he stood up to test him and he said, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, for the logical people in here, what 
do you have to do to inherit eternal life? What's the first thing you have to do to inherit eternal life? You have to die. The word inherit is kind of a hint in there. You can't have eternal life unless you're dead. So the lawyer is asking this weird question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And we kind of lean in. And Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? What do you read there? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said to him, Jesus did. You've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. Okay, this is good. But wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, and just who is my neighbor? Jesus tells a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among a band of robbers who stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. You always knew that was true of preachers, didn't you? He just passed by on the other side. So likewise, the Levite, the lawyer, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side as well. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near to him. And he saw him and the people listening to Jesus tell this story went, oh no, a Samaritan's a terrorist. That Samaritan going to kill off that good Jewish boy. This is going to be terrible. And they lean in and think, oh, that poor boy, he's already been beaten up. And now a Samaritan's going to get a hold of him. But the Samaritan was moved with compassion. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii. He gave it to the innkeeper and said to the innkeeper, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever you spend. Which of these three, Mr. Lawyer, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And he said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do Likewise. Now I'm going to tell you right now, if you use the parable of the Good Samaritan as a salvation story, you get in all kinds of theological trouble. Because if this is a theological story, it means you absolutely cannot pass anybody on I-20 who has a flat tire without stopping and helping them. Mm -hmm. It means you cannot pass by anybody who's out on, the sto- out on the street, made one of them little beggar signs, I'm homeless, I need cash. Means you can't pass them by if this is a salvation story, but it's not a salvation story. Do you stop every time you see somebody broken down on the side of the road? Do you give to people who are needy and hurting? The point Jesus is making in this story 
is it's impossible to inherit eternal life. And eternal life comes to us as a gift of grace, as a gift of God's love and mercy. This story challenges us, though, and it bothers us because there are things that Jesus told us we ought to do, and there are things and lifestyles and attitudes that Christ suggested strongly that we have, and we don't have them. Modern version of the story. There were three Methodist churches that fell on hard times, got so small, got so small that nobody paid attention to them. Not the bishops, not the district superintendents, not other pastors. They're just laying there in the ditch, hoping they can find somebody to preach for them on Sunday morning. And they did not know what was going to happen. And then along comes the Methodist from Trinity. And the question is, what will happen? What will we do with this opportunity? What will we do as followers of Jesus Christ, for other neighbors who are called Methodist, what will we do? What is Christ calling us to do? And what is Christ calling us to be? The good news is that for the parable of the Good Samaritan, it is a parable. It is a parable. And it reminds us that when we fail... God's grace is abundant. When we're not able, God is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. When we don't give second chances, God does. The Apostles' Creed reminds us right early that we believe in Jesus Christ, Son of God, our Lord, the one that has offered us his mercy, his grace, and his forgiveness. Would you stand and pray with me? God, we thank you for second chances. We thank you for an opportunity to do it again. And hopefully, Lord, do it right. Forgive us. Heal us, put us on that narrow path that leads to eternal life. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Refuge Podcast. To find out more about The Refuge and Trinity, visit us online at www.trinityruston.org.